Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to The Mentor. I'm Mark Boris. This week, I'm joined by Dave Sharma. Now, he's currently the Liberal Party candidate for Wentworth, which is Malcolm Turnbull's former seat in Sydney's eastern suburbs. His highest profile opposition in this seat is Dr. Karen Phelps. Now, she won the seat in the by-election in October last year when Malcolm Turnbull left. So I'm going to dig a little bit more into finding out a little bit of stuff about Dave Sharma because one of the reasons I think he didn't win the by-election is because he was new to the electorate and no one really knew who he was. Now, Dave has held a number of senior roles in public service, including postings overseas in Papua New Guinea and for four years as the Australian ambassador to Israel. He's a smart guy, this guy, and he's seen a lot of the world and he's very understated. He's not a big, noisy type of guy but he has a lot of depth and it is worth listening to what he's got to say today. I want to find out why he went into politics. What was it in his development, his social development, maybe even genetically, why did he end up in politics? I want to know what he thinks about the policies and what we need for our economy and small businesses because, you know, this guy's a great proponent and advocate of small businesses, particularly in the Wentworth district. There's 29,000 of them. That's a lot of small businesses in our area. And I want to talk to him about what Australia needs to do to protect itself in the future. I also want to dig into his background. I want to drag out of him, why did he decide to land in politics? So, let's get into it. Dave Sharma, welcome to The Mentor. Thanks so much, Mark. It's great to be here with you. Now, I've got to declare my position. Uh, It's probably well known that I'm a a liberal supporter, Um, that's assuming people read the newspapers and see photographs of me sitting there with Scott Morrison. But, uh, and this guy here, I'm one of his fans. He's Dave Sharma. Dave is the candidate, liberal candidate for the seat of Wentworth, which means he is not the incumbent. That's in, right. Incumbent in Wentworth. Used to be Malcolm Turnbull, the uh, former prime minister of the country. Um, and then, of course, we had the by-election, um, when was that, early this year? October, year? October. October last, last year. year. Yep. And uh, Karen Phelps, Dr. Karen Phelps, the independent in our area, one of the independents in the Wentworth area, um, got up. So I thought, well, and by the way, we had um, Angela Vitoukas in here who now runs a small business party, I think. And, but Angela, at the time of the by-election, was an independent candidate. That's right, yeah. And uh, she came in here. She um, asked if she could come in, and it's great. We did that. And uh, 
unfortunately for Angela, right at the end of the podcast, she said to me, um, well, will you vote for me? And I said, no, <laughs> because I was voting for this bloke. Um, so I just said, well, let's kind of even, even up the ledger here and uh, well, I'll bring in Dave and, and let's talk to Dave. I want to talk to Dave about his story because I think he's got a really interesting story. Um, no one's really had much of an opportunity to listen to Dave's story because um, he's only been around a short while in terms of the political environment. He's been around obviously a long while looking at him. He's got a couple of kids and a wife. He's probably, I'd say, you know, late 40s, early 40s. 43. 43. Yeah. Yeah, sorry about that, mate. Early 40s. And, uh, and, I'll and, take early 40s. <laughs> early 40s, that'll do us. And, uh, and I thought, well, I'm, I'm just as interested to hear about Dave's story in more detail, but in a formal situation like this, um, as probably everybody else in the Whitworth district. And by the way, anybody in politics. And by, we're not talking about here some guy who's coming in and wants to be the prime minister, or maybe he does, but he's not sort of, he's not that playing that sort of game. He is a real local member in my view. And, uh, and, and, and local members are interested in local politics and what they can do for the local people. He doesn't expect to get a free run. In fact, he didn't get a free run. Um, you know, during the period of the by-election, um, our former prime minister was actually in the United States of America. He was in New York. I remember seeing, watching, following his tweets and he wasn't that interested in, you know, what was going on here because uh, I guess, you know, he was to some extent feeling a bit unhappy with what happened and he was just happy to be there with his lovely wife and hanging out there in New York and doing, send, put, set, putting up selfies of uh, what he was doing in America at the time, which is fair enough. But da And so Dave had to do it all on his own and it's a, it's a tough business politics. It's fucking tough. It's really, it's to me, it's one of the most brutal games that there are. And I've been particularly interested in observing these games that we are now watching. This is as brutal as it gets. And it's extraordinarily divis divisive between the two parties, Liberal and Labor, or the two coalitions, Labor and Greens and Liberal and National. Um, those two coalitions are going at each other pretty hard. And to some extent, it's re a bit regrettable from my point of view, and I guess a lot of um, voters would say the same thing. But I'm going to tell you now, this bloke here is the real deal. He's a, actually a really good person, and uh, what we need to do is find out his story. So, mate, take me back. So you're 43, early 43, 40s. yeah. Okay. Take me back to uh, where'd you grow up. Tell me about your story. Like as a kid. Yeah, so look, I've, um, I was born in Canada. And uh, my father's Indian. That's where Sharma comes from. Mother's Australian. They met in, in London in the 1960s. We settled in Canada for a while when my dad had family. And then when I was three, we moved back to um, Australia to be near my mum's family. Um, and I grew up on, on the North Shore of Sydney, on uh, Taramara, deep up, up on the North Shore where my mum's family was. Uh, so why, 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 sorry, why did you, why did your family come back to Australia to be close to your mum's family? Well, yeah, look, I think because my, so my mum, you know, she'd grown up in Australia, um, met my dad in, in London in the 60s, pretty exotic back then for a white girl from Sydney to go marrying a, an Indian guy What's from the Caribbean. What's your mum's maiden name? Uh, Wood. Wood. Diana Wood, yeah. <laughs> Anna Wood. <laughs> Diana Wood. Diana Wood. Yeah. Marries, uh, what's your dad's first name? Bolan. Bolan Sharma. Bolan Sharma. That's that right. That is mad, <laughs> especially in London. Maybe London's probably a bit more progressive, uh, but relative to Sydney anyway, that's... Or no, Sydney in the 90s, you know, 50s Tamara. and 60s and stuff. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah, totally. So it was pretty exotic when my mum married my dad for the time and, you know, um, and he was always accepted by my mum's my family. But eventually, you know, they had my, my two older sisters who are nine years older than me, twin sisters, uh, and then me and, you know, my mum was raising three kids and thought, like a lot of um, 
parents do when they become parents. They want to be back closer to their parents and have the grandparents around and their Support aunts too. and uncles. Exactly. So, yeah, we moved back really for my mum to be closer to her side of the family and for us to be raised as Australians. Wow, that's cool. And uh, where'd you go to school? Uh, I went to the local state high school, Taramara High School. Uh, right. Did that one all the all the way through pretty much. Yeah, and, and, and just like, uh, I mean, I grew up in a different part of Sydney, um, and obviously I'm a lot older than you, but Taramara then, uh, what's what would that be demographically? Well, it, was a, it was a pretty new suburb then. I mean, I think this, the high school had opened in 67 or something because it was a newly developed suburb because it was, you know, quite a way up the train line. Um, really just young, young families, you know, yeah. young, you know, lower middle class aspiring families who wanted to, you know, get the Australian dream, buy a house, have a yard, um, be near some public transport so they can get into the city and, and be near some school. So, you know, most of the, I mean, a lot of young families around when I was growing up, a lot of children my age, a lot of great friends in the area who we've all moved out and moved on since. But, you know, when we were growing up, it was a very young suburb. And it, it, because it sort of, if you think of tomorrow today, you're thinking of up and offshore, yeah, um, yeah. big blocks of land, massive houses, you know, expensive. Um, so look, I grew up in South Taramara, which is which is the wrong side of the Pacific Highway. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, it's where yeah. you're down in the valley, the land's a lot cheaper, the houses aren't nearly as grand. Most of them are sort of 50s or 60s um, brick or fibro, fibro constructions. It's it's the ones on the sort of Warunga side, on the, on the northern side of the Pacific Highway out there that are the, the big old estates and the mansions and there's some beautiful homes up there. But we, we always looked up the hills at those places, but we never never lived there. And you went to Taramara High? Yeah. Um, so what, what, like Sharma, what, what religion were you brought up as? So my dad was, a, my dad, dad's father was actually a Hindu priest, uh, a Brahmin priest and Sharma's a, 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 a priestly name from, uh, from India. So my dad was sort of raised as a Hindu, but because where he grew up in Trinidad and the West Indies, all the good schools were Catholic schools. He went to Catholic school and, you know, became sort of Anglicized, um, through that process and, uh, my mum's um, Anglican, so I was raised loosely as an Anglican in my mum's tradition, but my dad's kind of multi-faith. He'll still practice some Hinduism. He'll still practice really? some uh, Anglicanism. He's, he's spiritual sort of a guy, but in a multidisciplinary sort of a way. And, wh- and what did your dad do? Well, he was a barrister. A so, barrister. Yeah, he was the youngest of nine children growing up in Trinidad, and he was the one that they all saved and invested for to, to get the formal education. So they sent him overseas to university in London in, in, in this is in 1948, so post-war, first time he'd ever left home, first time he'd had a night away from home, sailing from, you know, Trinidad to, to London um, to study law, which is what his parents wanted him to do. And then he and then he became a, a barrister and in practiced London. law. Yeah, at Lincoln's Inn in London, yeah. Right. And then did he practice law in Canada as well? He did in Canada and then and then back in Australia too. He's now retired now. My dad's um, dad's 91, but he still lives in, in Taramara, actually, not far from where, where I grew up and uh, still got a house there and I get up and see him there all the time. And mum? So my mum passed away unfortunately when she was when she was young and I was young when I was twelve years old and she was um she was forty six she got um, breast cancer uh, and it was pretty aggressive and look back then thirty years ago unfortunately the survival rates uh, weren't nearly as high as now the medical treatment wasn't as high as now so she she died within about a year and a half of um, her being diagnosed um, at a at a very young age I guess it, to some extent having two older sisters was quite helpful to you given you lost your mum when you were 12. Yeah, look, after that, it, it fell to my sisters who were then 21 and, and my dad really to sort of, to raise me because I was still the young one in the in the family. But, you know, like a, a lot of families at the time, you know, relatively traditional structure, the mums did most of the, you know, 
knew when your homework was due, knew to pay the school fees, knew where, where to buy the uniforms, knew how to make the school lunches, made sure you got to excursions on time, made sure you washed and cleaned and your shirts were ironed. Um, so, you know, we all had to, together, um, all kind of cobbled together and, and worked our way through that. And I think, you know, um, I've been a pretty self-reliant sort of an individual since that time because, you know, you learn quite quickly that you've, you've got to be when, when things like that happen at a young age. So consciously, do you think consciously at 12, 13, 14, you actually worked out, oh shit, mum's not here to do those things, I'm going to have to do it myself, or is or it just instinct took over? I think it was probably just instinct, but I mean, I just remember doing things that, you know, my friends were never doing at that age, like, you know, I'd go and do the groceries, I'd pay the bills at the bank for my dad when he was away, I'd, you know, um, I'd make sure I was there when tradespeople came by, I'd iron my shirts, I knew how to do the laundry and pack and unpack the dishwasher and cook dinner and, you know, all those sorts of things. And they're all great life skills to have, no doubt, um, but not the sort of things you normally learn at that at that sort of an age. Well, and my recollection of um, barristers and or solicitors is that um, they don't, it's not a nine to five job. Um, they usually have chambers here in the city yeah. somewhere and, um, and generally speaking when court closes at uh, 4 p.m., they go back to the chambers and they do their briefs and they usually see the, the clients and or solicitors and they can go well and truly into the night. And then again on weekends, if they're in the middle of a case, mm. they're spending the whole weekend preparing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they, sure, they make reasonably good money. They make good money and they you can get a good a good living out of it. But bloody hell, they work hard. Yeah, no, they and, do. And, look, and my dad certainly worked hard. He's always been very, you know, professionally minded and ambitious and wanted to provide for his family. So... He was always a hard worker and his career was always an important priority for him. So what does that mean then on Saturdays when, well, I guess at Tamara High in those days, there probably wasn't any school sport or no, such? I, mean, I used to, yeah, I used to play tennis with some friends and soccer as well. I'd normally try and hitch a ride with one of my friends <laughs> yeah. if my dad wasn't around to take me or yeah. sometimes I'd take the train to wherever I needed to go for to you know play the tennis match that Saturday morning or, um, and I got my, I think I got my license the very first day I could. I got my license on my 17th birthday. Same here. <laughs> well, no, I, I, no, I had actually had a, I had a few goes at it. I failed Did those you? first two times. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, but I, you know, strangely enough, I scheduled the test on my birthday, which is always a high stakes move, you know, because you're either going to ruin your day or you're going to have a great day, but I passed on the first go. So, uh, and that, you know, gave me a whole lot of freedom uh, then as well to be able to drive myself around. And, and, and what, and, okay, so we got, we got Dave Sharma. I mean, I, I guess... You're going to a, a school in Taramara. Um, you're half Indian. Um, t- now that I know that, and to look at you, I, I imagine when you were going to a school in the Upper North Shore in that period of time, you would have been looked slightly different to the other kids. Yeah, no, very much. And uh, so, <laughs> well, how it, was that? How was that? Because I mean, I grew up in, in the west suburbs of Sydney, which, by the way, in those days, um, it was all. Aussie kids, yeah, and uh, yeah. I was the Greek. You were the Greek kid, yeah, and uh, and we copped a hard time. Yeah, um, I can't imagine, but there was a, quite a few of us, so it was okay. I can't imagine there was a lot of Indian kids no, at Taramara High. The, I mean, I think you know when we were growing up in it, look in Sydney in the early nineteen eighties. I remember, you know, we were the first Sharma in the phone book in the white pages. Is when you used to have these physical white pages. I think we we're probably like one of about ten Sharmas, and certainly no one anywhere near us. And if you got the physical white pages today and look through, there'd be pages and pages of Sharmas. But no, at the time we were, we would, would have been the only Indian family in the area. And actually, I mean, my, everyone knows me as Dave and I, I go by Dave, but my, my first name is Devanand. Um, and this is a, this is a, an Indian name that my dad gave me growing, um, when I was born. Um, 
Interestingly enough, after a, a famous Bollywood film star from the 70s <laughs> <laughs> that my dad loved and idolised. Um, but I quickly learned going into school in Australia, you know, no one could pronounce Devanand, let alone spell it or say it. So it, it became shortened to Dave pretty quickly as part of my attempts to, to, <laughs> to fit in and be accepted. You know, when you're a school kid, it's, you know, being accepted is, is kind of the, the main game and fitting in. So there are a few things where you'd sort of, Airbrush away a bit of your past, or or or, or, or soft edge it a little. To well, s- I'm interested in that, Dave, because uh, Devon N. I'm interested <laughs> in that because because there's lots of ways to react to that. So I'm interested to know how you reacted to it, and were you conscious of it, or my, my I was not conscious of it, um, and my instinct was to react aggressively towards that, um, being or aggressively towards not being accepted, yeah, by the majority. And also to make sure I um, teamed up with those people who were similar to me. So maybe not just kids from Greek background, but, you know, maybe, you know, because like you, there was only three, four Borises in the phone book and they were my dad's brothers. We didn't, <laughs> we didn't even have a phone. And my dad's got one of six boys. And uh, so, I, you know, I found it quite confronting. Um, therefore, I was aggressive towards people who I've, I felt um, were non-accepting of me, which, by the way, probably wasn't the case. Yep. Um, and uh, and so I was I was physical against them. So I took it out on the football field or I you know, took it out in the boxing ring or I took it out on the, in the playground, you know, in the grounds if someone confronted me. So, which, you know, in hindsight was the wrong way to do it, but nobody sort of spoke to me about these things. And I went to a Catholic school too because uh, – well, that's that's that, that was what my parents considered to be the best cheap school, but like considered to be the best area, school in the area. Um, so, but what was your response? How did you react? How did you feel? Yeah, look, so I think th- without really... a mum as well, like that's that's a big deal. Yeah, and look, Tar- Taramara back then, like a lot of the North Shore and its changes, was pretty sort of Anglo-Saxon yeah. or you know traditional white. I think there was another kid at school whose 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 mother was Hong Kong Chinese and his dad was Czech. He was probably the other most exotic kid at the school. That is exotic. Still uh, is exotic. Still is exotic. And uh, he and I were good good friends. But I think there's only really the two of us that sort of stood out like that. So I think my strategy was always to kind of charm people through a bit of smarts and a bit of humour and being the funny kid in class or, you know, being the clever kid in class to, you know, to, to be popular, to be liked by people because I had something to contribute or, you know, something interesting to say or something funny to say. I could make a good joke. And I think that was sort of my strategy for, for being uh, being accepted, that people liked being around me. So they, It's they funny how we are, isn't it? Like how is, all kids are the same. They just want to be part of the group. They want to yeah. be accepted. And it's a sad thing when you think about it, especially these days, that, that everyone opens up into groups, but it's really quite primal in it a is. school environment. It is. It's when very I, primal. I mean, seeing my kids go off to school now, it can break your heart sometimes. Yeah. The stories they come back with, and you know it's just normal, you know it's just kids, you know it's just school, but it's really the law of the jungle sometimes totally. in school in a way that, you know, it exists in the adult world, in the workplace, but it's much more sophisticated and subtle and there are, you know, norms around it. In school, it's it's tough. And we're also mature enough, hopefully, when we're adults that we can actually position ourselves and we can just, we, we recognise it as primal and, you know, whereas kids don't know that. No. They, they say, well, how, why is someone being mean to me? Yeah. Why and, someone... I, and I guess what I'm trying to, and I, I never used to think someone was being mean to me, but in some respects they were. Like, so we had a football team. And we were we had a lot of kids on our side, with Lebanese kids, Greek kids, what have you. And when we used to play the other sides from around the area, they were more, um, you know, more 
Smiths and Joneses, et cetera, which by the way is all cool, but they used to have a crack at us. Yeah. It was, let's get the wall kids. Yeah. And, and all that did was, um, I didn't think they were being mean. I just thought they're having a crack at me. So that just rolled us up. up, Um, but if someone wasn't, didn't have the same sort of temperament as me and went home and told their parents and like, and I've got four sons and I've had this conversation with my boys when they're younger, not for the same reason, but I used to feel like you just, I used to feel a bit unhappy, sad for them. I used to think, that's not fair. Why kids being that way? And what I'm interested in, because what I'm trying to find out here is what, what was it in your background that may have added to your character that allows you to become the person you are today and representing people like me in the yeah. area of Wentworth? Yeah. Why, why do I, why, because I mean, I, I don't know you well, but something about you just resonates with me. And, and, you know, like, I don't know, sometimes I meet people and I just take on face value. They either resonate with me or they don't. It's got something to do with the way they stand, they look, they sound, what comes out of their mouth, the content, tone, tonality, etc. And I mean, I, I, I don't mind saying this to everybody. This, this guy is nice. He's a good person. I like him. And I don't know why. So what I'm trying to do is find out why. <laughs> and, uh, but I'm not a bad litmus test for this, this sort of stuff. I'm a pretty good judge of people. So that historically anyway, um, hopefully I'm not wrong in this case, but so I'm trying to sort of dig into a little bit. What, what, what was, do you think any of that had an impact on your development? Yeah, like your mum not being here? I you, think so. Yeah. You're being a, a dark skinned kid. Yeah. I think it just gives you a lot of empathy. You know, and it helps you understand people because you've been in situations. But you yourself. could have turned into a, a piece of shit too. You could have turned into you could someone have, who's resentful or totally. angry at the and world. I, and, and we know some of these politicians right now. I'm 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 and I'm watching them on. You know, I saw. I, mean, I won't say who I saw today on a, on a, on an Instagram account. But I just thought it was poor form what he did, what he was saying about another candidate who he is. This particular individual is from one of the parties. He's having a crack at someone I know. Right. And I just and they have and they're standing next to the photo of this particular candidate in Victoria, and I just thought it was poor form. Yep. And it's like a chip on their shoulders. Yeah. How is it that Dave Sharma didn't grow up with a chip on his shoulders? Who was it, or what was it that made you think, "No, I'm cool. I'm just gonna I'm gonna go with this." Well, I think yeah, it's I've got, I've got a lot of empathy for people. I'm quite you know look, losing my mum at an early age, being a, a bit of an outsider growing up as a kid or from an exotic background. Working as a diplomat, to be honest, when, you, when your job is all about understanding other peoples and cultures and their motivations and what's driving them, um, I'm often fine I'm putting myself in other people's shoes. And I think the other thing as well is, look, it's, it's something I inherited from my dad. He's very even-tempered, you know, and I think I've inherited some of his uh, tranquility of temper, which means, you know, you tend not to get angry, you tend to reflect on things a little more than, than get worked up. Is that up, an Indian I thing? I don't know. People say it's a sort of a, a bit of a stereotypical Indian trait, and I you know, I think there's probably some truth in it. Have you spent any time in India? Spent a lot of time in, in Trinidad and Tobago, which is where all my dad's family was raised. Um, not much time in India. No, we've sort of, his family came out from India to, to Trinidad about like, over 100 years ago now. So we've sort of lost a lot of connection with our family in India. India but it's, it's very strong in Trinidad, yeah. Well, I'll tell you something interesting. Um, I spent a lot of time in India. So um, I had a business in India back in 2000 and. Uh, Four, five, uh, five, six, seven, and eight. And James Packer and I owned a business over there with a, um, we own 40% and General Electric owns 60%. And, uh, and we were, um, lending money to, we weren't, our business over there was lending money to people to buy what they call two wheelers, which is motorbikes. Oh yeah. 
And um, two-wheeler finance is a big deal over there because everyone's got a motorbike and they use it to deliver lunches and all yeah. sorts of things. And um, it's a big business. You know, we're only lending a couple of thousand bucks, but that's a lot of money there. During that period, it was at least. And um, I used to go there every six weeks and I spent uh, four years doing that every six weeks. I was raising my own, my, all my children grew up with me in my, by myself in my, yeah. my, my house um, because unfortunately their mother wasn't well and I had to take care of them and their mother and I were, were separated. Um, and... Uh, and I used to have to leave my kids every uh, six weeks and go away for, uh, and I was just on my own. I had to go away for you know, five, six days, and I did that for years. And right. So I got That's to tough. understand India. It was a bit of a shock to me in the beginning, um, but I got to love the place, actually. And I will say this, um, my experience with, when we had 500 staff, with the, it, just about every Indian person I met, in relation to temperament, was that they were even-handed, they were quite understanding, and they were quite friendly. Um, they weren't judgmental or um, tough on you. Mm. Uh, I mean, it, the place is frenetic. It's a crazy joint. Yes, um, yeah. It's sort of hard to get your head around it because it's just everything's there in volume. Traffic, people, everything happens in volume, and it happens in a frenetic pace. But if you sit down with them and have dinner with them, or everybody's just very relaxed and very nice and mm. understanding. And it's funny, you didn't spend any time there, but maybe it's the genetic thing. Um, but just it, absorb some it of just, the cultural traits. Cu yeah. There are traits that are coming out in you that um, um, sort of remind me of my period in India. And it's, it's actually one of my favorite places, and they're some of my favorite people in the world. That I Favorite memories yes. of people I've met in the world. And I've done a lot of traveling. And so... There's something interesting, and then maybe, maybe part of the reason it is the way you are is not just your social development and your development to years with your parents, and then your dad and your sisters and all those sorts of things, but uh, but also maybe there is a genetic thing going on there too, um, because you know you just give me that sort of sense of it. Look, this this guy sort of give me a sense like he's reading my mind. I feel like he's going to levitate off the chair in a second. <laughs> he's like he's. He's like super relaxed, you know, like he's chilled, but he's at the same time quite knowing. Um, he has this sense of knowing uh, about him, but he doesn't push it out there. And unfortunately, mate, you're out there competing with um, your the other candidates in your area who are the opposite to you. I mean, they are very outward. They're yep. very uh, staunch and uh, promotional and uh, big. Um, and Dave Sharma's... He's big. I get the feeling you're big inside, but you're not out there, which is why I was keen to get you on the show yeah, because yeah. I wanted because I, I actually want I, I you're not going to be what you're not. I mean, we don't. But I want you, I want to promote you as what you've got going on there. So that's why I wanted to talk to you today. Um, it's something I'm learning about politics, and you know, a lot of people. That's have said, an important thing. Can you tell me about similar that? thing? Yeah. Look, I mean, people have said to me, you know, look, we just you got to get out there more. You got to be more aggressive. We have got to see you more, and I'm learning that. But I've also got to be true to who I am as a person, which 100%. is, a, you know, I'm not a, you know, I'm a relatively modest, I hope, person and I don't believe in sort of, you know, big self-aggrandizement or self-promotion or bombast or, you know, over, overstating claims or exaggerating. Um, but, you know, there's an art in politics. You need to add some drama to what you're saying. You need to add some theatre to what you're saying. It's It's sort of, it's. Partly, that's well. That, we're going to get to the second half because we we have to have a halftime break, just like the Roosters when we're going to beat St George this week. <laughs> um, but we, we have to have a halftime break, and we, and we, but, but I, I want to get that in the second half. I do want to just before I go to the break, though, I do want to ask you one more thing. 
and, and because we've sort of covered the first part of your life growing up without your mum from 12, maybe to the age of 18 or whenever it was, whenever you left school. Yep. Two big sisters, a dad, a dad who's busy. Um, you then working how to, how to basically how to survive, you know, survive as a kid, not, yep. not, not in any particular sort of desperate way, but just living your life. And you moved, you moved, did you ever move from, um, the upper North shore down to the, down to the Sydney suburbs or what happened at your 18th birthday? Like, yeah, no. So when I turned 18, so I, I did my HSC, still called the HSC, I think at the local public high school did, um, did pretty well. Um, I actually, I topped the state, um, the year I did it, I got, a um, uh, I think it was a, the TER mark was, was a hundred. And then I got an offer to go to Cambridge university, uh, to study there. And so after I turned 18 or shortly thereafter, I, I, Took myself off to the UK and studied for um, studied for three years and, and came out with. What a, did you study? I started off studying science. I thought I wanted to be a doctor, but um, after a year of um, studying science, I realised that probably wasn't for me. I didn't love spending the time in um, hospitals and labs and things like that. Uh, so I changed to law, and I ended up graduating as a as a lawyer with a law degree. So the, the, and of course that was a massive understatement. So um, Dave Sharma, top of state, he got a. TER, whatever those things are called, which basically means 100. And what that means is that if they take, it doesn't mean you got 100%, it means you got 100, which means they, they take everybody else in the state and they mark everyone backwards and or they mark someone forwards. So you, the guy who, you got 100 because you're the top of the top of the group, number one, and uh, obviously got in, and by the way, didn't get a, a scholarship at the University of New South Wales, which is where most of the smart kids go and they do a commerce law degree or some of that, or they go to Sydney to do a, a medical, medical degree. He actually got a... He got an offer to go to Cambridge, straight up. Um, and that was, there's an example of an understated person. I mean, he, that's a pretty tremendous position to be in. I mean, we, you're, some of you, the candidates you're competing against, they are doctors. Karen Phelps, she's a doctor. People might say, well, Karen's a doctor. Like, sh they might think she's smarter, or therefore I shouldn't need to vote for her. But this guy, no one even knows this guy, graduated with a law degree from from Cambridge. That's right, yeah. Um, uh, won a, uh, won, got an offer to go to Cambridge and stopped the state. So, like, pound for pound, I'd have to say they're pretty much equal, or you might even sort of put a bit more weighting on um, uh, Dave's, Dave's position. And, by the way, he doesn't walk around with anything after his name or anything before his name. It's just Dave Sharma. That's right. I've yeah. never seen anything anywhere about after your name and before your name. I didn't know that about you. I knew you'd studied law, but I didn't know anything about you in that regard after school. So we're going to go to the break um, as we just unwrap this dude and find a little bit more about him because it's uh, pretty fascinating. G'day. I've got to come up with a new word for people to listen to podcasts. So let's call you Potters. <laughs> G'day, Potters. Okay, as usual, I like to sit down and let's call it highlight or uh, showcase a business that we have on our books for sale. And I like to bring in Matt Holland. He's our CEO of the business sales side of our organization, mentor.business. And what Matt does is he finds vendors, he trolls through them all and works out which ones are worth highlighting on our show. And then what we're trying to do is tell you as buyers what good businesses look like and what's the sort of businesses you should be trying to invest in or at least have a look at if you're interested in buying a business. So welcome, Matt. Thanks, Mark. Now, we often talk about, you and I anyway, um, we often talk about 
you know, s- small businesses versus medium-sized businesses versus large businesses. And I'm talking when I say small, I'm talking about in terms of price, value, and or turnover. And often, you know, we, we see people who have cafes, for example, who really just, to be frank with you, just want to get out of the cafe because, you know, the, they're not making any money. And what we try to do is help them sell out of their business and they don't, a lot of times they don't get anything for it, but what they do is they can get away from the obligation and the grind of actually being in that business. And that's a pretty important um, service that we provide. And equally, we can get a cafe or and or coffee shop, um, which has got a fr- which is a franchise, which is turning over really good numbers and actually is a great business to buy. Yep. And today you have exactly one of those. So what do you got? to highlight this week. Yeah, absolutely agree, Mark. Uh, this week, we've got a business that's very different to the last, you know, the last uh, time I was on the show. It was, you know, $10 million turnover. This particular business is, is nearing a million dollar turnover, been in operation for about seven years. Uh, we've got an, an owner here that's it's running a good business that makes money, but just it's just been a bit too long. He's, he's been there for seven years, got a nice long lease on it, and it's time for somebody else to take over. But, yeah, but Kit, I mean, you're allowed to tell me what the name of the franchise is. This week I can absolutely. Right. It's a Gloria Jeans, right? Okay, and uh, I mean I because I a lot of our vendors are very sensitive as to um, sort of broadcasting exactly the details of the business that they got for sale. Mm. But can you give me a vicinity? Is it in City no, Melbourne? I, I can do better. I can, can do, do better. It? This this vendor is is very open to right. us disclosing it, and it's over at Newington. Newington, Newington. Yeah. Where's Newington? Around the Homebush right, area. Okay. Yeah. So we've got a Gloria Jeans franchise with a million dollars turnover, just sub a million dollars. Um, he's looking for just under a half a million dollars for this one. Right. Um, he's got it under management, but you know, really. What's that mean? That someone else manages for him? Somebody does manage it, but ultimately this business should be self-managed. So, so it's, it's an, it should be run by the owner. Absolutely. Yeah. Because yeah, that's how you squeeze the most money out of these things oh, and get the best return. This owner, I was talking to him earlier and he was telling me when he was in the shop full time, he was definitely take, making over a couple hundred thousand a year right. um, consistently. You know, it has fallen back a bit under management. You know, he's not doing as much. But the book's still showing over $100,000 to the owner. Yep. Um, so that's that's still not a bad result. But, yes, yeah, certainly this could do with somebody so, in the business. So when you look at a business that's been up for sale for, let's say, the asking price is half a million dollars, for argument's sake in this case, um, what what does that tell a buyer? Does that tell a buyer that they should be making one hundred fifty grand a year to, to pay that sort of money? I mean, where does the valuation sort of dynamics sit? Look, as a rule, um, we, we try and aim for about a three times multiple uh, of on profit, profit. Yeah, of the net right. profit. But there are variables. I mean, the variables could be that it, what if the, the, the business has just done a new fit out and they've just spent 200000 on the fit out. Yes. So we have to take that into consideration. The lease terms, we have to take that into consideration. And, and you know, just, just the, the branding, everything about the business, we have to look at it. It's not just a simple formula. Right. You know, systems, processes, brand. Uh, and viability. So sometimes you add premiums to the price, the value, and sometimes you make discounts to the value. Absolutely. Based on these certain variables. So just everyone who's listening, so let's say you're a buyer or you're a, you're a seller of a business in Australia and you're looking to get a valuation guide, can they come into Mental.Business and talk to you and get some valuation guide? Oh, absolutely. That's what we do. We, most, most people in business want to get an idea of where their business is. You know, even if they're not ready to sell, they want to see what, you know, what's, what's the potential of their business right now. So what we can do is help them you know, get a guide on what their business is worth and hopefully improve the value for them. And the best businesses I've, I've taken to market are the ones we've actually had time to prepare for market. Right. That, that's important. So 
Like if you're if you are interested in either getting valuation for your business, or just to know how you how you're going, or you want to sell it, or you're a buyer, you want to know how these valuations work. Come to us at mentor.business. Um, can they sort of seek you out directly, Matt? Matt Holland. Yeah, absolutely. Ask, yeah, by all means. Okay, come to Matt Holland. So, is it, what is your email address? It's mholland yeah. at mentor.com.au. You flick him an email and let's see you get your journey started. We're trying to work out what the thing you've been putting your sweat, blood and tears into and your money and every bit of emotion and your whole families as well. Let's see if we can find out what it's worth to you today and let's try and work out how we make it worth more. And if you want to buy something or you want to sell something, also contact Matt. It's mholland, H-O-L-L-A-N-D at mentor.com.au. You want to sell a business, you want to buy a business, you want to get a valuation, you want to increase the value of your business, talk to Matt. Thanks, mate. Talk to you next week. Thanks, Mark. Well, we're back from the break and I'm, I'm talking to Dave Sharma, who's the current candidate to be the Liberal member for the seat of Wentworth in the eastern suburbs of Sydney. And Dave is telling us about, well, I've been asking Dave about what makes someone a good candidate based on you know, what I see as being their, their upbringing, their history. I mean, what, what's Dave about? What's Dave Sharma about? And we've established that, you know, the Sharma, by the way, is an Indian name. He's, that's Dave is his adopted name. It's not really his real name. He's a Davenant or something like that. Devonant. What is it? Devonant. Devonant. And, uh, and he went to a school up, the, up in North Shore of Sydney. Um, by the way, he really cracked it when he did the HSC, did brilliantly, and he topped the state, and he ended up going to university in, in um, London, which is Cambridge, of uh, no less, and got a law degree out of that place, which is, by the way, sort of followed in the footsteps of your dad a little bit, because your dad, did he go to Cambridge? Or? No, he went to um, King's College in King's London. King's College, yeah, same deal. Similar, went overseas same to university. Went King's there. College is a pretty well-known place, as, as good as Cambridge and Oxford, et cetera. So did you at that stage then decide you're going to become a lawyer? No, I think um look by then I was I was interested in the world and the the world around us and Australia's place in it and that's really I I came back to Australia and um and um after a bit of time joined the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade or DFAT as a as a graduate which is basically our you know our diplomatic service because I wanted to help represent Australia overseas and you know help keep our country safe and secure and prosperous. But, but but they must have thought, hello, we got a a, a guy here who's grad uh, who's graduated from a, with a law degree out of Cambridge. I'm assuming you've done quite well in ca- at Cambridge, and you would have you know got an unbelievable experience coming from a, a, a university like Cambridge, a global experience, from I an mean, international experience, top the state in Sydney in the HSC, um, and you end up a DFAT. I mean, why weren't you uh, going to work for uh, Alan and Hemsley or Mallisons and? Uh, then sort of be going to become a barrister and, uh, you know, maybe one day sit at the bench. What? I just, I don't know, I don't know why, but it just didn't excite me. I think um, I saw a lot of, obviously a lot of people I went to uni with went off to jobs in, in the city of London and it was usually, it was law firms or Deutsche banks Bank. or, yeah, yeah, yeah finance. Josh Frydenberg is a good example. consulting, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, but I just, uh, I didn't sort of get me passionate, I, I think, and I was, I was always passionate about. So what are you, 22 then? 23 when 23. I started at, um, at, at DFAT. Yeah, no, I was just passionate about, you know, Australia and the country we've got and how to, you know, it's a pretty audacious national project, Australia, and often we forget that. I mean, you know, here we were founded in our modern incarnation as a penal colony 230 years ago, not with a view to establishing a nation on the continent. Um, and here we are 230 years later, you know, we're one of the most harmonious, successful, prosperous, secure, um, good countries uh, on earth. Uh, 
and I've always found that a pretty remarkable story and I've always wanted to be a part of that or be involved in that somehow. And, I, you know, that was the diplomatic service was my way of trying to make a, a contribution to what is Australia's success. Again, understated, um, maybe you should take us, like, you know, I'm, I was the opposite. All I wanted to do was uh, make a shitload of money and, uh, <laughs> you know, push my way through, you know, wherever I could get to to get to the top. And I didn't even know what the top was. I just, you know, I just was in there, shot, put my shoulders in there, push people out of the way. You know, I'm, I'm your typical story, um, which is your, and, and I'm the noisy story. You're more understated. I mean, I mean, you talk about something quite deep here. Like I would never have thought about that at the age of 22 or 23 about what I could offer my country and what was fascinating about my country. Um, I was interested about myself. I was very egocentric. Um, which, by the way, drives a lot of young law students, etc. I mean, there's a quite that's actually a big dynamic in that environment. Very few people come out with that broader sense that you're talking about. Where did this come from? Like, what was it that made you think what you just said that Australia is a great country? Going right back to our origins. Yeah, look, I think it was probably just my background, you know. So not having been born in Australia, of course, having a Indian father and growing up in a, you know, pretty poor home in a pretty poor country who, you know, got some opportunities. The fact that we were welcomed um, in Australia, uh, you know, as, as my dad a migrant um, and, and, you know, my mum in a cross-cultural marriage, which was pretty unusual uh, back then. And then having spent some time overseas, you know, in, in the UK and Cambridge studying and when you're overseas, you always tend to look back at your own country and you see it in a different light. You see it through a different perspective. And I think all of that sort of informed me and realised, oh, look, you know, what we've got is pretty special in Australia and, 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 and we can't afford to take it for granted. And that's still really for me the, you know, the, the motivating drive for me being involved in public life and, and wanting to get involved in politics is that um, we've got something pretty special here. We need to preserve it, but it's incumbent upon each of us to make a contribution to, you know, leaving our society, our country, our, um, our land in a, in a better state than what we, how we inherited it, and and we can't take that for granted. You know, Australia doesn't run on autopilot. Um, you need people in all spheres of life, in business, in the commercial world, in politics, uh, in communities, in schools, in classrooms. Um, you know, helping to make the country a, a stronger and better place every day. And then, well, that's a that's a great answer, by the way. And uh, it sort of, to be frank with you, makes the hairs on the back of your neck stand up a little bit because it's pretty cool to have somebody your age, but also with your experience actually saying that to me as an Australian, I'd like to know that our country's in good hands and is in the hands of, is in the hands of people with, with an attitude like that. So DFAT, which, you know, most people don't, never heard of DFAT. So tell us what that does as yeah. a department. So it's basically runs our diplomatic service. So all our embassies and high commissions and consuls general overseas, and we've got about, you know, 90, 95 all around the world. Um, but it's about representing Australia and Australian views on, on the world stage and to other countries to make sure that when, you know, trade deals are being concluded that Australian exporters or Australian interests or industries are being looked after when we're, you know, um, negotiating a climate change agreement that we're all doing our fair share and, you know, carrying our weight. When we're doing things like, um, you know, wanting to investigate, um, uh, you know, the, the downing, say, of that civilian airline over over Ukraine, um, AMATCH-17, which killed a number of Australians, you know, the Australian Diplomatic Service is the one that pushes for an investigation by the UN or other bodies. So um, it's Australia's face to the world. And I, I 
served overseas um, in Papua New Guinea uh, uh, with with, DF, with with our embassy or high commission there um, in Washington DC for four years as well. And then so you went lastly, around. So, so where have we got an embassy or a, a, a high commission? Yep. Um, DFAT would second you to those places. Well, DFAT basically runs them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and you were going work in these places. Yeah, so exactly. where'd you, would, you, would you say Papua New Guinea? Did you yeah, say? Papua New Guinea. So I was in Port Moresby for um, two and a half years and, and Bougainville as well for six months. And then after that. Uh, after that, Washington, D.C., we yep. were stint back in Canberra um, for four years working with our embassy there. And then again, after a stint back in Canberra um, in Israel as the Australian ambassador to so Israel for four the, years. Is, is, being the ambassador, is that's not really like working in DFAT, though. That's like a not a step up, but it's, it's yeah, slightly it is different. A, it, it, is, it is slightly different. You're on sort of a different... Um, I don't know, sort of terms and conditions, if you like. And it's, I mean, the ambassadors are not appointed by DFAT. They're appointed by the government of the day. It's actually the governor general formally who appoints ambassadors. They give you a commission, uh, if you like, but it's usually on the department's advice. So you've got, we've got a mix these days of our ambassadors, Australian ambassadors, or a mix of career diplomats, which was the sort of person I was, and then political appointees. So people like... Um, Joe Hockey. Yeah, Joe Hockey. Or, Joe's been on our show. Okay, yeah. Actually, Joe announced his ambassadorship to go to the US, to Washington. On this show? On this show. He decided, I'm not going to give the newspapers, and we broke the news. Is that right? On this show. We never used to do it. We used to do it up in King's Cross. And then he broke the news, and we went down the road and had a cup of coffee, and we filmed him. And uh, they uh, all the newspapers had to ring us up and get the details and put it on the front page of the Herald. It was broken on this show. <laughs> and Because uh, we're a mate of Joe's. And, uh, and, and, and that, that's a, that's, so Joe, you effectively... Did what Joe is currently doing, but you did in Israel. That's right, yeah. And where did you live in Israel? Whereabouts? So I lived in te- or north of Tel Aviv, a beachside suburb north of Tel Aviv, and the embassy was in Tel Aviv. And then, uh, then we travelled to Jerusalem a lot because all of Israel's government is basically in Jerusalem. But I travel around the whole country because you know, your job as an ambassador is to engage the local community, local society, local people and figures. So. You know, I was sort of anywhere and everywhere at any one time. So that that's sort of quite fascinating in itself because you're you are the ambassador in a pretty heavy zone. Like there's a lot of pretty heavy sort of stuff going on in yeah. a place like Israel. Um, Indian father, Australian mother, um, not Jewish actually. A lot of people I, assume yeah, I must not be Jewish, Jewish as yeah, well. Yeah. No, you're not Jewish, and uh, but you still are in there having to understand what Jewish people are thinking about exactly, it. And, and yeah. clearly also those opposing Jewish people, yeah. what they're thinking too. Yeah. And they're trying to take a sort of somewhat balanced view to make sure from Australia's point of view that Australia is probably represented in that environment. Yes, yeah. Yeah, very true. And it's a very, look, it's one of the most contested, if you like, parts of the world, yeah. parts of territory in the world. I mean, you know, there's the Israeli-Palestinian dispute, which has really been going on since Israel was, was created as a modern state, since basically the modern Middle East was created. Yeah, 67. Yeah, well, yeah. 48 before that, but then 67 after the Six-Day War. But then, you know, there's, look, there's a... That's uh, interesting, you know, because in 1947, also India uh, got petitioned. Yes, separated so, from Pakistan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting that. Um, yeah. So in 48... 48, Israel was created. Yeah. Um, and there was a plan, the UN partition plan at the time was to create a... Palestinian state and a and a, a Jewish state, Israel, yeah. um, and Israel said, "Yeah, we'll take what you're offering us." Uh, and they uh, created their state, but the Palestinians or the Arab world at the time didn't accept this partition, so they invaded Israel. There was a war of independence, um, or th- that Israel calls the war of independence, which sort of fought to a ceasefire, and that was Israel where the, where the ceasefire lines were in 1948. That's that was the it's modern interesting. State it also happened in India around about the same time. It was yeah. 47, I think, was partitioned. Yeah, I mean, it was because it was basically this sort of wave of 
decolonisation because the British were getting out of Israel the same time they were getting out of India because they couldn't, after the Second World War, they couldn't bear the cost and bear the burden of of running these overseas territories anymore. So India, same thing, they said, we're getting out. They got out in a hurry um, and partition happened um, and they got out of um, Israel in a hurry as well, what was called the Mandate of Palestine at the time. Uh, And out of that came, you know, not only um, Israel, but, you know, Jordan to a degree and the modern borders of Lebanon and Syria and Iraq and all, all, a lot of these Middle Eastern states, the modern Middle East, came about really at the end of the First World War when the Ottoman Empire was defeated and the Ottoman Empire had run most of those countries and then the end of the Second World War when the colonial powers, the French, the British and others basically said, we're, we're going back home, it's, you know, it's over to you guys now. That's just, and and you, so how many years were you the ambassador? For? Four years I was Four there, years. so I, I finished about a year and a half ago now. And did you get married there or were you already No, married? so Rachel and I, my wife Rachel, her and I got married just before I went to Washington. So we started to we started dating before I went to Papua New Guinea and she's a she's a lawyer as well by training but in international human rights law. Um, then we got married just before we went to Washington. We had our two oldest daughters when we were in Washington and then we had our third daughter who's now five, um, turned six tomorrow in fact, uh, just before we moved to Israel. So it was... we took our three daughters over with us to Israel and uh, we were all there together for the four years. And it, that, that would have been a great experience for your kids. Yeah, it's an amazing experience. I mean, it, look, it's a, just a very enriching country because there's, so there's so much going on in contemporary sense. There's the whole high-tech scene and startup oh, it's scene, which, is, too, by the which way. is phenomenal and amazing and something we can learn a lot from in Australia. And then there's all the history and civilization and religious history and whatnot that has, has all washed over those lands for thousands of years and... You get a real sense of who we are as, as humans, as civilizations, as people, uh, um, and what identity means to us as, as humans. You know, you, you sort of grapple with all these questions when you're in a country like that, and it's 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 a fascinating place to spend time. So, Dave, I'm going to put you on the spot now. So, Dave Sharma has this sort of quite deep, rich, intellectually rewarding, um, and experiential life, um, working both growing up being educated in Cambridge, um, having an unusual family structure. Um, well, not the norm, put it that way, in a quantitative sense. Um, then uh, having this great experiences, ultimately as an ambassador in one of the most uh, troubled yet also most beautiful places in the world. What does that do for you and you bring back to Wentworth? What I mean, what does that mean for us people in Wentworth what are we we going to get from Dave Sharma? Yeah, look, I think to be honest, I, I'll just I'll be a great advocate and a great representative because what I've done as a diplomat is been an advocate and a representative for Australia to the world. Um, and what I'm asking for now, the people who went with us, say, let me be your advocate or representative to to Canberra to the Parliament, and you know help make sure that your views are represented and articulated and prosecuted on the national stage. Help to make sure that your um, opinions and beliefs help inform policy and how we're governed as a country. Help me, uh, let me help you, you know, fix issues that matter to you in your own community, be it, you know, the lack of a public high school or a second public high school. But that's crazy. I can't transport. believe this. I, I, David, that, that's, that's a mad one. Yeah, I'm, I agree. I, I can't believe there's, there's one public high school. No, look, and I've got, you know, two daughters are about to go into high school in the next few years and I look around and I think, gee, there's not a lot of lot, lot of choice here. Well, I mean, you're sort of forced to go to private school. Nearly. Yeah, you're being, and that's, I mean, we, you know, I, as a liberal, I believe in choice and parents should have choice yeah. and I was yeah. a product of the public school system. Yeah. I'd love to go to um, make sure my kids have that choice as well. But it's tough. We used to have more, as you know, they used to yep. be, you know, one of boys, boys and Dover yeah. Heights and everything else. They've all been closed, I think, you know, 
short-sightedly because now we suddenly realise that, well, hang on, there's a lot of kids in the area and they're all about to start hitting high school age. So, it's, I mean, that's a really important local issue, um, the lack of a public high school places in the eastern suburbs. And have suburbs. the demographics in the eastern suburbs changed? Yeah, I think so. I mean, if, if you look at some of the primary schools, which were close to closing, you know, um, not that long ago, sort of 20 or 30 years ago, are now bursting at the seams. And I think it's just... People, you know, the, the traditional pattern, you know, this in Australian life is you'd have kids, you'd move out to the suburbs and the yeah. kids would grow up in the suburbs and the inner city was for younger people. But now people are increasingly happy to raise kids, you know, in close in. I mean, I live in a terrace in Paddington with, with three kids um, and people wouldn't have done that 20 or 30 years ago. But because people's, you know, behaviour is changing, then it's changed the demographics. Suddenly there's lots more young kids in, in these areas than there were and the people expected 20 or 30 years ago and the infrastructure hasn't kept up. And then, and I guess there's a there's a sense that, you know, Wentworth is a, a blue ribbon seat for Liberals, um, but obviously that that didn't occur October last year in the uh, by election. Yeah, not so blue ribbon now. Not so blue ribbon now. Um, and for those people who didn't vote for you, I mean, let, let me put it another way: for those people who voted for the independent um, member, Karen, um, what is it? Do you think that they think they're going to get from Karen that they weren't going to get from you. I mean, what what is the what what is who are these people? Uh, what do you think? Look, my my biggest sense is that last time around there are there are, and I've picked this up because I was campaigning last time around. A lot of people who are angry and resentful and annoyed at you know basically leadership instability. What had happened to Malcolm, who was their loved and liked um, you know local member, was also the prime minister. How had he been? toppled by his own party. Why was, why was the Liberal Party burning through leaders? Um, you know, people were annoyed about that and people said, you know, we're going to take it out of you this time. We're going to protest oh, really? vote. We're going to, you know, I had lots of people say to me, oh, Dave, you seem like a nice guy. You know, it's nothing personal with you, but we're not going to vote Liberal this time because we're too angry about what's happened. And I've had a lot of the same people this time around say, look, we protested last time, but this time around, you know, we hope we've learned a lesson. Uh, we're moving beyond it. We hope you do too. Um, and we're focused on the, the future choice. And this is really, you touched on this at the start, this is an election of some pretty stark choices and mm. some pretty stark policy alternatives. And I think that's what people, I think, and Wentworth are focused on, that they're either going to get um, they're either going to get a coalition government or, or a Labor-Greens government, as you said, and you're not going to get, there's nothing in between. Uh, you'll get one of those two governments. And which way people put Wentworth will help determine which government they get. And are you going to have a, you know, government that, on our side, on the coalition side, um, believes in strong social services and looking after people and creating opportunities, but believes that it's the private sector and a strong economy that gives us the best opportunities to, to do all these sorts of things we want to achieve as a society? Or are they going to support um, a Labor Party that has got a pretty um, uh, aggressive agenda against the middle class, against people who have saved for themselves, looked after for them, looked after themselves, whether be they self-funded retirees or investors or small business people, uh, and basically sort of takes the economy for granted and wants to redistribute wealth in the economy. And I think that's the choice that people are facing in this election. And and Wentworth's going to help to determine, you know, which which of those two visions governs Australia for the next three years. It's a very interesting proposition, um, the middle class proposition. Um, uh, of course, the, the very famous period in our political history when Menzies talked about um, the forgotten people. Forgotten people, yeah. And um, and he was talking about the middle class. And it's interesting, we seem to get more noise around the edges for the smaller minority groups 
which by the way, you know, you grew up in a minority group. I grew up in a minority group. Um, I'm glad minority groups getting a voice, mm. which they never had. Mm. But it's nearly like the voices um, overshadowing the, the majority of the people. Now, I'm not s- suggesting where um, all acolytes of Adam Smith and the majority rules or that sort of stuff. I'm not suggesting that. But at the same time, sometimes I don't understand, maybe you can help me out here, I don't understand why middle Australia, which is, by the way, you know, it's, the, it's not everyone in these suburbs are rich. Um, no, and, no. And exactly. by the way, not everyone in Australia is um, retired and, you know, going playing golf. I mean, I still consider myself working class. I might have more money than a person who's just starting out, but I work every bloody day. I work really hard and I've mm. worked every day of my life really hard. Uh, and that's all I know. So I still consider myself working class and mi- working class, middle class. That's where I'm at. Yeah. And, uh, there, and most people, and some of I know, are like that. In, in my area, my, people I know. I'm sure there's some people on the edges who are super rich. They do nothing and sit on the yacht all day long, but there's not many of them. And uh, and then there's some people who, who are just doing it tough who want to get into the middle zone. Why is it the middle zone struggles so much to be heard and to actually to take control? Why is that? Oh, yeah, I, look, I think it's one of these groups that just, you know, does, doesn't doesn't yell loudly. Um, uh, doesn't scream and and doesn't sort of have a particular single body representing them. I mean, there's lots of you know groups of particular you know peoples or interests or professions that have got bodies representing them, be it a trade union for a particular you know industry or be it you know um, you know an ethnic council for a particular ethnic group or you know any other groups. Um, and it's good that we've got these more diverse voices in the public debate and hearing them. But I think. Sometimes we neglect that. Yeah, there's a lot of people who 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 don't have a body representing them, or, or an industry group, or an advocacy group, but they're still Australians. They're still worthy of our attention and uh, um, our time. And you know, I think one of the one of the great strengths of Australia has been a middle class that's that's mobile. By which I mean that people can enter it quite easily. It's not closed off. People can all aspire to it, and that it's, that it's large because it gives a great strength to our society. And if you see where other societies fail. It's usually because the middle class is under um, under threat or under pressure, and you end up sort of having a group of haves and a group of have-nots that end up engaging in class warfare, and that's when you get you know revolutions and you know all sorts of things: Marxism, communism, uh, fascism, or just uh, dysfunction. Yeah, or dysfunction or gridlock. Um, and in Australia, I think you know we have got a strong middle class, and it's part of the glue that holds us all together. That we all feel like we're basically in this together. Um, and that even if I'm down on my luck, I can always be accepted into this group if I work hard and aspire or people look after me. Um, and I think, you know, some of these, some of the policies that are on the agenda now are basically an attack on the sort of that aspirational or middle-class ethos that if you look after yourself, if you provide for yourself, if you work hard, um, the government will, you know, respect the choices that you've made and allow you to keep what you've earned or keep more of what you've earned. Um, I think when we sort of start to start to attack that class, the middle class, and, and favour particular interest groups or sectional groups and reward some and punish others, we're basically sowing divisions within society. I, I don't think it's healthy. And I think that's sort of where, and my gut feeling is that's where politics is right now. That, that's sort of, I think, yeah. that's, that, I think that's seems to be the game that's being played by the various interest groups and the, the Labor guys. I, I, you know, I'm not here to have a crack at Labor, but I just, that's just it's, a, it's an honest feeling. Um, and I, my, my equally, cause I mean, I'm a big part of middle Australia, uh, the 2.1 million small business owners who mm. employ 6.2 million people. Yeah. 
um, who all have a, a spouse, male or female, and usually have one or two kids. Yeah. And you're talking about, on average, mathematically, around 14, 15 million of, the, of Australia. Yes. That's the bigger percentage of the country. Yeah, that's yeah, huge. On any number, huge. on any basis, mathematically, that is a big percentage of the nation. That's middle Australia today. Yeah. And they're your aspirational people. They're the people who get up at, you know, five o'clock every morning and they get ready to go to their work and they take their kids to school and they might have them primary school, they might have a state school, they take the kids to sports, they watch their favourite footy side or the cricket side or and uh, they shop at the shops and, you know, they keep this country going. And to me, they are they are forgotten. And, and I don't mean, I'm not saying this political, I just say they are forgotten because they're not making enough noise. And the only way they can make noise is now. Is, is in this election. In this election, yeah. They can make noise by voting a certain way. And I, for me, economically, where we are sitting, we are vulnerable. Yeah, we are, no doubt. Right no now. Doubt. We have headwinds coming in from overseas. We don't know what's going to happen in the US. We don't know what's going to happen in Britain, Great Britain. We don't know what's going to happen in in China. With China. China. China's a big issue. We don't know what's going to happen in Europe. Europe's a big issue too. We're sitting back here in Australia where we've always had it wonderful because we've got lots of resources and we're asset rich. But to, to a large extent, we were, none of those things mean jack shit unless the rest of the world's going okay. Just okay. It doesn't have to be brilliant, but just okay. Yeah. But if it gets in trouble, we get into massive trouble. Yeah. So what we – and we can't control that. But the thing we can control is what we do here um, and our own policies. Mm. And to me, the worst thing that could happen internally is that we put things – in jeopardy because it's politically expedient that I have, that you voted me and therefore I have to go and do what you want me to do. And that's, that doesn't make sense to me because it puts the whole place in jeopardy and some may actually end up with a reward. But for me, I actually reckon that doesn't happen. I think because the whole place turns to shit, everybody gets punished. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, we need a government that governs for all Australians and the whole yeah. country, not just the groups that they think support it or the groups that they think reward it. Need, and, need and, 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 and at the end of the day, we do need, and, you know, your party, you know, we need your party to say, and by the way, we'll, we'll look after all the minorities too. We'll, we'll do our best. I mean, that, that needs to be said. I, I'm not here to say minorities shouldn't get looked after. But equally, I don't think the tail should wag the dog. Mm. Uh, you know, and that's sort of the feeling I'm getting, the tail's starting to wag the dog. I mean, like, like I mean, I pick up newspapers. Look at I, I, I look at all the online stuff, and it just seems to me that whatever Scott does, he gets rubbished. Whatever Josh does, he gets rubbished. It, and I just know a lot of people think what they're doing is fantastic, but yeah. are too scared to say anything. Yeah, and uh, it's like you're picking sides. I mean, often I get worried about saying because I think, well, I'm gonna, am I going to get punished for picking doing sides, these things? Yeah. And I do know I do hear rumours coming back to me about people who are lining me up if they win the election, you know, they're going to square up with me in some right. way. And, and you know, it's, and I don't know whether, I mean, look, at the end of the day, you've got to take sides and I'm going to take my side. My side is middle Australia and I'm going to say who represents middle Australia. The best, yeah. That's all I'm interested in. Yeah. And uh, if it was Labor, I would say Labor. Yeah. Right now I think it's Liberal. I, uh, I don't even think it's National Coalition. I just think it's Liberal. Yeah. It represents middle Australia to me. No, I mean, it's not, none to me of as well. I mean, that's why I'm standing and for them. And that, is that where you is that is that what motivates you? Is that what drives you? Yeah, very much. I mean, I do honestly believe that um, you know this liberal government is 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 the best option for Australia for the next uh, 
three years are the ones that will help keep Australia strong and united and successful and prosperous and looking after our disadvantage and providing opportunities. And I believe the alternative is is it's not like the Hawke-Keating Labor government yeah, that we had. I agree. You know, which I think was a good government in many respects. This is a, a Labor government that's sort of from the 1970s with the sorts of policies they're offering, their kind of divisiveness, their um, rejection of, I don't know, aspirational, you know, uh, people, middle class, people who are trying to make their own way, build a small business, invest in a, in a, in a property, negatively gear, you know, get a capital gains tax discount, all those sorts of things. Stay for the superannuation. They're hitting all those people really Franking hard. Franking credits. Franking credit refunds, yes, yeah, self-funded retirees. Yeah. I mean, I, and, and, um, I, I mean, I know to some extent people who might be listening to this who are maybe think that, uh, you know, that's all sort of self-serving practice discussion, and to some extent it is, um, but at the same time, I believe in all that stuff you just said. I mean, I, I am actually a firm believer on all those policy issues you just raised that are being sort of, to me, they're, they're negative issues. Mm. They're not things that are saying to me that we're going to be nation building. No. And to me, it's about building the nation and then letting every one of us individually do our best, try our hardest, not be punished. Just, but let's just, what we'll do as politicians, we'll build a nation instead of, no, we're going to pull the nation apart, we're going to redistribute it all. Mm. That that's that sounds like I don't know. It sounds like uh, post war world post World War Two Soviet. Yeah, that's Stalinism or something along those lines to me. It's, and I don't like the sound of that. And, it, and the same things happened in Vietnam. The same thing happened in China. The same thing happened in a lot of places, and it didn't work anywhere. Um, it happened in my father's in Greece. Yeah, of course. The, you know, the communists were trying to take control of Greece, and the socialists tried to take control of Greece, and Greece has never recovered. Never ever recovered From, after World War Two. Yeah, they had a civil war, and uh, it just never recovered. And and it still today suffers because the system is has been poisoned by this sense of um, oh, everything's unfair. You're earning more than I have. You got more than I should have. Some of what you what you make. Yeah, and it, as you said, everyone suffers when you start sort of playing that zero sum politics. That you know, I've got to take from you to you know to give to myself rather than thinking about how can we all do better off together. Correct. And and your party, I guess, is and nation building to me is the most important thing a politician and a political party should stand for. Build the nation mm. to make us stand out. And I, mean, I guess your experience being a representative of this nation overseas, you probably know where what other people think of us. They probably think that how lucky we are. I mean, what, what do people think about us? Oh, yeah, look, people are often, you know, I mean, people would often say to me in all seriousness, oh, what do you have to worry about in Australia? It all seems pretty good. I can't, what do you spend all your time talking about politically? Or, or you know, you just spend all your time talking about sport, which is partly true. We do spend a lot of time yeah, in Australia talking about sport. But people look at us and think, gee, this is a country that's, you know, harmonious. Like people seem to, you know, live together. There's not big social or ethnic fault lines or religious fault lines. That's prosperous. It's one of the wealthiest countries in the world. Um, that's secure and safe. People don't have to worry about their safety or, or security, um, and that basically is a you know force for good in the world. Um, but uh, you know, as we know, we can't take that stuff for granted. I mean, yeah, we, we are. We should count those blessings every day and be thankful for them. But we should also recognise that there's nothing preordained about them. They've been built on the on the on the back of generations of Australians of you know uh, people who've worked hard, people who've built businesses, people who've taken risks, um, people who've you know invested their own capital, their own house, their own, you know, in, to, to build our economy and, and people have made sacrifices as well uh, and, and good good government really, good public policy leadership to help build the nation. But just because we're here where we are today doesn't mean we're going to be here in 20 years' time or 30 years' time. It's always, a, you know, 
challenging for us to make sure that we continue on that path. It's, it's interesting. I mean, I hope you don't mind me, but I've been looking looking at your Instagram and, uh, and I have sent a few messages, which, by the way, you haven't replied to. But I think uh, I did. I replied no, to you, a few you know, last night. No, well, one of the things I noticed <laughs> is that you're actually visiting small businesses in the Wentworth district. Yeah. And what are you learning from them? Well, I mean, there's firstly, there's there's 29,000 of them in, in Wentworth. I wow. mean, you know, this is an elect. This is, there's about and they're not all rich either. No, and there's like, you know, there's... It's about a quarter of everyone who lives in Wentworth is yeah, is, is that right? Is, yeah, and probably more since they're all adults and there's about a hundred thousand voting adults and there's twenty nine thousand small businesses. So, big representation. And look, they're all you know, um, they're lifebloods of the community. They're local employers. They're generators of economic activity. Um, and as you said with your figures before, I mean they're the they're the backbone of the Australian economy. But they're they're always um doing it tough. I mean they're always you know, be it the you know, uh, red tape and regulation. Um, be it uh, you know, tax the tax system or, or compliance, um, be it finding and retaining good workers in you know industries like hospitality, which is which is tough as well. And it's a tight labour market in Australia. You know they face challenges um, uh, every day. But because it's just a you know small you know second generation family business or a couple of people, they don't have a big voice in the policy debate. I mean they don't have an industry group representing them in Canberra. They don't have lobbyists down in Canberra. They like don't have that. a trade union. No, they don't have a trade union. So you know you've. They often feel like they're not being heard because they're too busy running their small business to go and out and you know lobby or give a press conference. Or they're also scared to make a noise. Yeah, true. Because they think they're going to get punished. Very who, true. Who am I going to offend? Yeah, in the community. Like, uh, and is someone's going to boycott my business? Correct. Or, yeah. Is that a potential customer or yeah. is uh, someone going to take advantage of it? So, yeah. and but these are the people we've got to be listening to. I mean, because that they're at the sort of you know at ground zero of the economy. They know exactly 100%. what's happening. On they know exactly how how. The economy's behaving. They know if the economy's slowing intuitively before the Reserve Bank does, before the Treasury does, because they see it walking in and out of their shop shop door every day. Um, and these are the people that know what are the challenges facing the economy, and, and these are the people whose advice we need to be taking. What are they saying to you? Well, I think they're concerned about um, economic headwinds. I mean, look, the housing market is is slowing in in Australia, particularly in Sydney and Melbourne, and some of that's a, a natural and a welcome correction because the market was overvalued. But if it goes too far or too fast, it's going to end up having an impact on consumption spending and people's disposable incomes, and this, you know, through the wealth effect, um, and it'll have an impact on things potentially like you know uh, the rent and returns and people are getting. Um, they're worried about labor's changes to negative gearing and um, capital gains tax because this is this is going to risk what's turning a natural housing downturn into a um, a pretty severe um, downturn in the housing market, which will bleed out into all parts of the economy, construction, housing, uh, consumption and everything else. Um, and they're also, I think, noticing that, um, you know, our, our economy is growing a little more slowly because of the global economic headwinds, because of the US-China trade dispute, because uh, the US economies are slowed down because Europe's got a whole lot of political risk in there at the moment with the UK and Brexit. So there's a lot of uncertainty out there. It means a lot of investors are sitting on the sidelines, it means a lot of consumers are sitting on the sidelines and small businesses are feeling that. Yeah, and, and uh, do they... Do, does small business still see Liberal as their, I don't know, as their representative, do you think? Yeah, I think they do. I think because, you know, we see small business as one of our natural constituencies and we're always very attentive to um, to their concerns. I mean, I think, you know, Labor these days, their main people they listen to are the trade union movement, um, which, you know, I think it's about 17% of the workforce now is a member of a trade union. It's not like in the post-war days when over half of it was. Um, and it, and in the private sector, it's much less. I mean, most of those trade union members are in the public sector. 
Uh, so you know, th- you know, they're an, an important group, and labour groups are always important. But so are employer groups, so are industry groups, and so are small businesses. We need to be listening to all these groups if we're going to run the economy for the benefit of all Australians. I mean, I, I, I've said it before, but I actually think it's a nonsense at the end of the day to say, well, people who are employees, they have the double E at the end of the name, need to be represented by a trade union, but the people who have an ER at the end of the name um, are the bad guys and mm. don't necessarily need someone to represent them. Um, I, I think employees and employers all need to be equally represented. Yeah. Because like, it should be a, a coalition of representation yeah because it doesn't make sense employee against employer no you know, like, i mean because if you kill if you do something that the employer can't afford to do then you'll kill the business and the employer lose their job in the in the end anyway so it's one big ecosystem yeah i know we're sort of mutually dependent and, yeah you know, totally. when when the business succeeds you know the employer succeeds and the employee succeeds it's good for good for everyone yeah. i mean it's the same you know these natural divi- or divisions that people like to set up between you know shareholders and wage earners. I mean, these days we're all shareholders because yeah. we all earn a salary. We've all got super uh, and we've all got investment to stake in, in Australian companies through our superannuation fund. So, you know, we, we want all this stuff to do well because we've all got a stake in it. That's a great success of Australian society is that we've, you know, lots of people uh, have, have a stake in lots of different parts of society. We're all property owners in Australia, or lots of us are. And if, if we're not, most people aspire to own property. So, you know, we've all got an interest in that sector succeeding as well. Um, and, you know, I think when you try and falsely divide society between these people on one side and these people on the other, you know, both parties end up losing. And, and I think that's sort of where I was trying to get us to. Anybody who professes and or pushes and or talks about division of the ecosystem is ultimately going to destroy the ecosystem. Mm. We have an ecosystem that the whole world admires. Yep. And... We shouldn't take it for granted. In fact, we should be trying to build the ecosystem mutually and not to the benefit of just one party in the ecosystem. And I think any government or any party who produces that philosophy is the party you should vote for. Anyone who talks about a divisive, division, divisive sort of politics, I just can't vote for them. And because you're going to destroy what the rest of the world thinks is the goose that lays the golden egg. Yes. And that's our wonderful ecosystem. The culture, the, um, the, the diversity, it all builds into this one beautiful thing we look at every day. The one thing you talked about right at the beginning, which is what you thought about when you left Cambridge, this is what Australia has. Mm. It's the thing that inspired you not to become a, a barrister and one day become a judge but and do what your dad does, but to actually go and work for DFAT and actually become an ambassador and come back to this country and now stand in the seat of Wentworth to keep going what is such a beautiful thing. And it'd be a shame if it gets fucked up. Dave Sharma, thanks very much. Thanks so much, Mark. Great to be with you.